This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Houseless. I'm your host, Peter Agostin, and thank you for joining me, especially on this Thanksgiving holiday week special, uh, where I decided to drop two episodes this week. Earlier in the week, we had a fantastic um, conversation I recorded at WFMU, radio station in Jersey City, New Jersey, with the one and only Billy Jam. And then today's episode is with an incredible writer, journalist, Harvard grad, record label owner, producer, performer, and now uh, chef, Skiz S.H. Fernando Jr. Some people know him as Skiz Fernando. Some people know him as under his performance moniker, Spectre. Um, we go we go pretty far back in that uh, I've worked with him on a few different uh, um, levels. Most notably was our time working together on the short-lived, albeit very memorable, TV show that was on VH1 called Ego Trips, The White Rapper Show. A challenge, reality, game show-esque um show a uh, program produced by the the guys from Ego Trip magazine um and and Skiz Fernando and I worked uh behind the scenes I I actually worked on the show from uh from its inception uh at least uh, from the very beginning of pre-production all the way to the very end if you guys have ever seen the show you know what I'm talking about um but Skiz and I when when he came on board uh, we were kind of like the silent runners of the show, driving, he, he handled the talent, uh, namely the uh, host, MC Search, and I drove the, the white rapper contestants, white rappers quite literally being the pr- uh, premise of the show, uh, from challenge to challenge. So we talk about that, uh, we talk about the um, story of his long-running record label, Word Sound, Many of you might know that from a Prince Paul's psychoanalysis album and uh, numerous other projects uh, from Sensational. Uh, he did Paul Barman's first record uh, and a, a gang of other really cool stuff. Um, Scotty Hard. We talked about his time um, working with Bill Laswell, a friend of his, and as a Harvard grad, um, his early works uh, writing on The Source. But... Um, and then now his uh, foray into food, he took Anthony Bourdain to Sri Lanka 
for uh, Anthony's show, No Reservations. So we get into that. We get into a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I myself just walked out in the backyard. Uh, it is Thanksgiving uh, today. And uh, regardless of how you may be uh, uh, not celebrating it, celebrating it, um, ignoring it, um, I love to cook myself, uh, holiday or not. So, um, but, you know, I'm here uh, in Virginia visiting my dad. I got my girlfriend with me. So just the three of us here. Uh, so I decided to roast a duck today that we got from a farm here in town. Um, so I got a duck in the oven and I, I you know, you know, I got to get back to that. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and the cranberries just popped. So I got to get back to my cranberry sauce. So without further ado, um, here on the house list with Peter Agostin, check out my conversation uh, recorded in my living room in Brooklyn with Skiz Fernando, AKA SH Fernando Jr. Right now, let's, let's go into this. Come on, y'all. That's why I was like uh, really interested in talking to you too in that, um, you know, I know that I first became familiar with you through your writing. Well, first through the source. Oh, okay. Um, because, you know, uh, I'm 30. Oh, are we starting? Yeah, now? we're okay. starting. Right. Yeah, yeah. Are you going to edit this at all? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. going to edit. I'm going to like kind of fade into okay. it and stuff. But again, like since, you know, this is still like, right. this is like in the uh, pilot season, you know? So, uh, um, but I absolutely are going to use this, but I will edit it. I have to figure out that right. getting the nuts and bolts down first and shit, the real content. So yeah, and this isn't anything formal whatsoever too. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just really trying to, to, to pull stories or anecdotes. And you and I have sort of crossed paths like a few times over the years. Um, and it's funny, really quick, I'm gonna, I wanted to bring something out real quick too. Because with, um, even with oh, the... Wow, you got a copy of the new Beats, huh? Yeah, actually, I do have a copy of it, which I had you sign. I don't know if you even remember. Oh, yeah. This was actually on the set of the White Rapper show. Okay. <laughs> and I think I may have asked you to, to write Keep It Schmoove on there. Um, but this, I love this book, but I also found this in just in my all my oh, storage. Geez. Yeah, the... Um, all right, you got like a beta copy of yeah. Booty Clap? That's uh, crazy. Yeah, Booty Clap. How did uh, you get that? I think you may have given this to me. Oh, okay. Because uh, for a while I was doing the Culturama right. music video. exactly. Yeah, music yeah. video compilations. And uh, I did, and Jason X was like sort of the bonus after the credits because obviously it was uh, kind of a rated X uh, right. style video. Did you make this video? Yes, we did. You shot it? Yep. Because it's pretty amazing, too. I'm holding We a, shot it on film, too, on 16-millimeter yeah, film. Yeah, that's what it looks like, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, All in one day at this place called Tukey's in downtown Manhattan. Wow. Tukey's was the... Tukey Smith was Bob De Niro's girlfriend who, mm. owned, who owned a bar wow. called Tukey's. And... A friend of mine who happens to be in town, all all friend of mine from the music days, this guy Sasan, used to be the manager there. Oh, so shit. they closed down the bar, and in like the last couple of days before they closed it down, we we snuck in there and shot the video. Amazing, like, you know, it wasn't being used, and we got real strippers from Philly to come up and work for free. It definitely looked um, authentic. Is, yeah, and this is like way this is way before all the twerking and stuff broke you know no because this was what 90 um this is like 96 yeah. 96 
Yeah. And as you can see, there's booty all up in that. Yeah. Know? I mean, it's just bouncing booties. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you had like, it was a real club scene too, because it was the bouncers outside, yeah. there was a line. Yeah, because I, rem I remember trying to think. It was Prince Paul, and I think Sensational might have been. Yeah, in there too. all the all the word sound characters were in there. Right, Sensational, Mr. Dead was in it. Right, right. And so yeah, actually, maybe that would be a good um, thing to sort of talk about first because I definitely have known of the label for a long time, but but looking even like before you came over, kind of going back through the history of it too. I mean, it's a uh, you know the. You were put, your first record was like in the early '90s, right? With word sound. Yeah. The. You want me to talk about a little about how the label started? Yeah. Let's. Okay. Yeah, because obviously you had other stuff going on at the same time. I mean, you were writing around the same period of time too. Yeah, right? I'm one of those characters who, when I'm into something, I get into it from all angles. Yeah. So, you know, as far as the music industry is concerned, I started off as a journalist for the Source, as you said, and then. I was also dabbling in making my own music at the time. Right. And at a certain point, you know, the writing and the music production kind of crossed over because I was, you know, um, I was making music and then I was writing about the, the, the hip hop scene that was just, blow, just blowing up in New York right. in the early 90s. That was really the first time that hip, hip hop came you know, became mainstream, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, obviously there's been, there's been different times during the course of hip hop, like 79 when Rapper's Delight came out, that right. was like the first time it peaked out of the underground. And, but the 90s was an amazing time to be in New York and um, New York was all about hip hop back then. You know, it's just like uh, all these groups were coming up from different areas in New York you know you had uh, you know up to, I mean it was just a, it was just an incredible creative time and where were you living then I was living for, well the first I came to New York to go to school I came to New York to go to Columbia right. for journalism school right which is a year-long program and when I came to New York I actually had in mind to write a book about hip-hop that was that was one of the main reasons for coming to New York, mm -hmm. you know, because I I had gone to school in Boston, to, I went to Harvard, and then after graduation I went to Greece for a year and taught at a school. Wow! And then, uh, you know, I was kind of formally formulating my ideas of what I wanted to do next, and New York. I was just so into hip hop that New York was the magnet. I had to be in New York. So of course, yeah. to justify it to my parents, to my mom, I went to graduate school at Columbia. <laughs> right, so, right. you know, I got, I got the legitimate end covered. And while I was at Columbia, I was just immersing myself in the hip hop scene. I right. was just, any, any type of school assignment they gave me, I kind of related it to hip hop. And then, uh, you have to do a master's thesis when you, when you, before you graduate from Columbia. So I did my master's thesis on the connect, connection between rap and reggae. Mm. Yeah. Which is, there is a... And there's a whole chapter, yeah. and that became a chapter in my book. It's right. called Raps, Ragamuffin Roots. Right. Because going back a bit, in college, I was heavily on, into radio. I used to do the radio station. In Harvard. Harvard Radio, WHRB 95.3. Nice. 
I used to do the dub frequency every Saturday from 1 to 5 p.m. Okay. The best in roots, rock, ragamuffin. Nice. And we played all types of reggae, but specifically dub. So that that's the other end of my personality. You know, right. Dub, Which, you know, for... Dub spectrum. Absolutely. And in word sound, if you know, if people are familiar with the label and the catalog, there's that is definitely a heavy uh, Dub theme. and hip hop are right. like the twin pillars of right. word sound. So where was I? Yeah, so... I came to New York wanting to do this book through Columbia, through all my assignments was from Columbia. I was actually able to work on the book, and not only that, I took they had a they had a class there the second semester called the book workshop, which basically, you, you know, during the course of that workshop, you generate a, a book proposal, and that's what I, that's exactly what I did. I wrote a proposal for the new beats, and about four months after I graduated. I actually got a book deal from Anchor Doubleday, one of the biggest yeah. publishing companies out there. And this was like 93. And it was like, it was like a dream, you know, to get paid. I mean, I didn't, obviously I didn't make a lot of money, but I was, I got to, I got to advance to write a book on something that I loved. Yeah, that's incredible. And so I just immersed myself in the whole scene. I got to know so many artists. I was hanging out with the artists. I was hanging out in the studio, going to studio sessions. Like I went on tour with EPMD and the Hit Squad. Yeah, which is by far that's my favorite chapter in the book. And oh, that's okay, what I cool. went. I went. That, yeah, yeah I go like, back to that. Too. That was like fly on the wall type. Right, right. You know, on a rap tour. And that was the first time I had ever been on tour before. <laughs> right. You know, before I performed my music myself. So right. that was very educational for me. So were you freelancing too at this point? Or? I was okay. pretty much just for the source. Right. Because going back a little bit too, you know, Harvard, at right. Harvard, sure. two of my classmates were John Schechter and Dave Mays, who were the two guys who started the source. Right. They the creators started, of the source. Yeah, they right. started the source while they were at Harvard. Right, that's right. And right. they had a very successful radio show that was on right after mine called Street Beat. And somehow they were just so connected. They used to have like... Like, I, that's where I first met Guru from Gangstar when he was wow. still living in Boston. Wow. You know, it was like the, I forget what they were called back then. Uh, maybe it was still Gangstar. Or was he just Keith, Keith E? Keith E, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. And Almighty RSO was in right. the Right, yeah. the infamous know, with, with RSO, who of course have a long uh, history with the source, too. But, uh, yeah, give thanks to John Schechter, because he gave me my first... Uh, writing assignment so did you write um for the source when it was in harvard no no only after they moved to new york we graduated in 90 and then they moved to new york set up the source and then when i came back from greece to go to school at columbia then i linked up with them again and i started writing for the source and then you know at the time there were all these other underground hip-hop publications right. popping up so i just started writing for all these and you got to understand, this is like a new form of journalism at the right. time, too. Hip-hop journalism, you know? There's very few people who were, who could really write about it, uh, you know, with that inside view. Right. And, and New York was absolutely, like, in New the York center of the that. the nexus of right. it at that right. time. You know, this is like, you know, they, it, was, it was still going on in other places. L.A. had a, had a, had a, had a scene, sure. for sure. And, you know, I covered that in the book, too. I went out to L.A. Right. And I talked to Dr. Dre and... Uh, Jerry Heller. I, I saw Cypress Jimmy. Hill. Yeah, you know, all, the, all, the, all these groups who were doing stuff out there. But, 
you know this the new beats to me really kind of kind of documents that 90s scene when hip-hop was basically just moving out of the underground into the mainstream and um I thought I thought the book the book did pretty well, but one of my professors at Columbia said, "Man, if if your book had come out like five years later, it right. would have probably been a bestseller, you right? Because like so many more people were into hip hop and everything." Yeah, it definitely was a bit ahead of its time, and I remember even the the ads in the source because there were ads for it because it was so because uh, there's that image of one of the dudes from Daz Effects that was right. like part of the I don't know if you recall the sort of the half page ads or whatever they were, right. and it was. You know, I don't remember. Besides, like maybe Rap Attack, David Toop's thing. Um, like there were that was from the eighties. Yeah, which is a totally different style of writing, right. a different. And he was British too, I think. Yeah. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, so this was like this new. It was edgy kind of thing, but it was still like years from this kind of influx of other many other books. Now there's you know countless uh, right. hip hop books, but right. it was especially with that kind of sort of raw style of journalism too it was uh and you know i'm proud to say that it was all original research because because as you said there was there were only when i wrote the new beats there was only stephen hagar's book which is it which is my all-time favorite book which is the illustrated history of hip-hop rap and break dancing steve hagar that was the first book on hip-hop that ever came out and then david toop's rap attack was a huge influence too but um, the New Beats was like the first to cover the 90s, which was like a whole new right. era for hip hop, you know? And, um, and yeah, it was just, it was just, uh, just you know, I've, I feel privileged to ha- even have been alive during that time and right. just to have been there because that was such a formative time for the whole culture. I always see hip hop as a culture. I don't, you know, the rap industry is something totally different. But, you know, hip-hop culture is still alive. People don't realize it. Right. You know, people think it's just about rap. But uh, that's, what, that's what always drew me towards hip-hop, you know, was because having grown up with it and people are always dismissing it as a fad. And, you know, I knew that it was so much deeper than that. So. Could you speak on that chapter with the Hit Squad, too? Because uh, just because it's such an entertaining read if you're like a fan of of that sort of narrative style fly on the wall sense of journalism but it also you know you kind of caught that those guys that they're like sort of commercial peak peak. and then like there's an afterward after that chapter i don't know if you remember where you where it was like where and i didn't even realize this until reading it just recently or rereading it rather where it's like i didn't you know there's that you know infamous story of how Paris Smith was robbed set up and robbed I didn't realize that was before they went on tour and he and there was some kind of sense that maybe he didn't tell everyone else and for the sake of the team or the business they continued with the tour even though there's this kind of notorious story yeah, there was like a well well basically um, there was a PR agency back in the day called Set to Run, and they used to be be the publicist for m- a lot of the New York rappers okay. at the time. And my friend, I, I was friends with all the people up at Set to Run, and especially this girl Devin Roberson, who you might know. She's yeah. since passed away. Rest in peace, Devin. But uh, Devin was my hookup to all these rappers, and personally, 
EPMD was one of my favorite groups coming up in college, you know, strictly business. Right. You know, what, what, what else can you say? That, to me, at, at, their, at their time, they were so, their production was so far ahead. Eric Sermon's production was just like some space age funk. Uh, yeah, it was incredible. Uh, they, you know, they, they had the whole hit, then they had the whole hit squad, which was Dots Effects. You know, they brought Redman into the game, K Solo. Uh, Keith Murray, you know, and when I found out that they were doing this big hit squad tour, I, I basically straight up asked Parrish, Parrish Smith, I said, yo, I'm doing this book, you know, about hip hop, and I'd like to use you guys as a case study, you know, just, to, mm. to, you know, because basically at the time, that's how people, that's how new groups came into, into the music industry through established groups. Right, and that and the Hit Squad was almost like a template for that, you know, because you had EPMD, who is well respected, and then they're bringing these other groups like Das Effects. Then Das Effects goes platinum, you know. Then they bring in Redman, right? You know, so obviously they had good taste, right? Because these right. guys are still around today, right? Redman, Das Effects. So I, 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 back in those days, it was just easy to approach rappers. They weren't surrounded by a whole phalanx of publicists and all this stuff. So I was interviewing Parrish at Set to Run one day, and I said, uh, I'd like to go on tour with you guys. And he was like, sure. Wow. You know, it was just like easy as that. So I went on tour for like a week. It was just basically New York, upstate, and it was, uh, it was a... Uh, it was like the kickoff to their national tour, to right? To national yeah. tour, yeah. And actually, I don't want to talk, talk too much more about it, because I have... Uh, I, I talk a lot about that in, in my own book. I have I have a book coming out. Oh, all right, yeah, perfect. I, have a book coming out. I just finished it. <laughs> oh man, well, congratulations. Thank yeah. you. It's a memoir. What? Tell me about it. It's yeah. a memoir, and it's called Gen Next. Cool. And it's basically about you know the trials and tribulations of a of a creative trying to make it in mm. society. You know, I, I, like you said, I've been. Not only do I write, but I make music, I make films, I'm, I, do, I cook, I'm into a lot of different creative stuff. Right. And that's how I've basically tried to make it in life. You know, I, I've never really had like a job, job, you know, right. I basically pretty much work for myself. And, you know, people think it's a glamorous life, but it's, it's, it's hard. It's very hard. It's very hard to make it. And every day is a little different than the next, a different level, stress level, and yep. you know, the projects come and go, as many peaks and valleys. So, yep. yeah, yeah, so, yeah, very well. So, I'm kind of I'm, I'm kind of doing this for all creative people like myself who, you know, everyone thinks, oh, they're living a great lifestyle, they don't have to work, they, you know, but. Really, when you work for yourself, you work ten times as hard as anyone else is working. Absolutely. So, and people who work for themselves know that. So there's no doubt about it. So you're actually expanding on that story in the book. Yeah, yeah. I have, I have, I have a lot of vignettes, you know, cool. from, from from the from the vaults of from pretty much everything I've done. So. Oh, that's awesome, man. But yeah. So, was, so you were mentioning too, just like kind of before we jumped into that, like the and I love to talk about this just a little bit, is just th those early um, times writing for The Source and writing for whatever those, the, the, that kind of first wave of New York kind of publications, whether 
you know, because there's a lot of smaller ones under the source too. Right. And, and there's a stable of writers that are still uh, working to this day that really kind of got, got their chops up from that time. Chairman Mao and Dave Tompkins and, oh, yeah. you know, Elliot Smith, Sasha, Elliot Wilson. And um, so, but yeah, just what was that first? Uh, do you remember what your first piece was for the source? I do. It was actually a piece on this English group, a live band called the Brand New Heavies. Ah, yeah. And they were kind of, you know, at the time there was this kind of retro funk movement going on. You know, you had... Um, this has got to be like, what, 92 or 91? Yeah, early 91, 92, you had like Soul Kitchen right. going on, you know, like... The Goats, I think that was maybe something like that too. That right? was a, yeah, that was that was a band, right? Right, yeah. yeah. But there was this retro funk phase going on where people were like... Uh, Interested in what people were sampling in the hit in the hip in the rap tunes, right, right. And then they would ha they would just have these club nights where they just played all those old original oldies where that people sample from, mm -hmm. you know. So basically, the brand new heavies were doing this live. They were playing like live funk things, and then they did an album called the Heavy Rhyme Experience, where they collaborated with all these New York rappers, right. uh, Guru. Master Ace, Grand Poobah, um, I think Cool Keith might have been in that, if I'm not mistaken. G-Rap, I think. G-Rap, uh, yeah. So they, there's a lot, yeah. So, funny enough, they shot the video for this at this abandoned warehouse in, in, William, in Williamsburg. Right. And this is, this is when Williamsburg was very scary, believe right. it or not. <laughs> I think it's I think it's actually scarier now yeah, with all the it's very debatable. All yeah. the she she stuff going on there now, but uh, back in the day, it was a different kind of scary. It was a kind of like you know all these like fiends and well, and Kent the, Avenue was totally desolate. Yeah, like you yeah, know, it was yeah, it was it was it was pretty bad, but. The, the heavy shot this music video in this warehouse on North 11th and Barry, I remember. And that's the first time I had been out to Williamsburg. And I was like, wow, this, this is pretty cool out here. Because it's like, you know, before that I was living uptown in East Harlem and it was just too hectic. You know, it was just like, that was my first experience with New York. And, you know, our apartment was robbed up there. Wow. There's crack dealers on the corner. Uh, you know, it's... It's not, it's not environment that uh, that you really want to live in. So when I f saw Williamsburg, it was like, wow, these old abandoned factories, a lot of space, not too many people around on the streets. And after that uh, brand new heavies video, I actually ended up living in Williamsburg, like right across the street from. Oh no way! Video. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a, that's kind of funny, but. Yeah, that was my first, like I used to, this a lot of stuff that I used to pitch for the source, they had a column called Hip Hop Alternatives. Right. Because I've, cause I've, I've always been hip hop and then some. Right. You know? I'm, I, I grew up with hip hop and I love hip hop, but I've always been into other type of music, you know, all throughout my life. You know, I went through my heavy metal phase, my disco phase, my punk phase. Right. I've, been, I've pretty much been into any type of music. So... I was always trying to, I was, my angle for, for the source and other hip hop magazines was kind of to write about stuff that was on the periphery of hip hop. 
which was basically where I was, you know, uh, in my own production, and then later on, subsequently, with Word Sound. Right. Word Sound was not a hip-hop label, but it was hip-hop related, and it was kind of on the peripheries of hip-hop. And I think the funny thing is, like, we were never accepted by the mainstream or even by the New York hip-hop scene, but now the stuff that we were doing, like, 20, 25 years ago is now kind of mainstream right. you know like people take these crazy shit like stuff that Kanye does right yeah you know it's like these crazy beats and you know electronic stuff and it's it's kind of good to see now that yeah it's, it's interesting evolved how it's come into that direction but you know when I when we were trying to do this 20 years ago no one was trying to hear it at right. all you know it's like uh, at the same time uh, you had labels in England like Mo Wax and right. stuff like that, you know, Trip Hop, who were kind of trying to take it in that direction. Uh, but, you know, this was in the 90s when the New York hip hop was at its peak. So yeah, like, no, that was rolling. Right, yeah. Know, so you couldn't really. But then you got, I mean, it, you worked with, like, for Word Sound, you, you worked way out of just that conventional sphere of hip hop, obviously. I mean, even like with bill laswell you've done a lot of stuff with him right, right. like oh, you, yeah like, to, to this day bill is one of my best oh buddies. nice yeah i'm going yeah. in fact i'm going to see him right after oh no interview. way yeah? yeah oh cool i always see him every time i'm in new york how did you guys hook up because he was an early williamsburg greenpoint guy if i'm not yeah. mistaken too like actually you know. bill that was another guy that i i wrote for wrote about in the source oh nice yeah. in that like alternative hip-hop alternatives yeah. column <laughs> I, I, I pretty much own that column right <laughs> So, I heard this album that Bill was doing, I think it was like 92, 93. Uh, he has this group called Material. Oh, I'm not hip to them. And it's not really a group. It's all, You could call it a super group. Because right. the thing I liked about Bill Laswell was he didn't just... You know, I was into like sampling weird records that no one even in the hip-hop scene had heard of. Because everyone was into like the same old stuff, funk and soul, and like pretty much sampling black music or like some, you know, funky rock, white rock from the seventies, right. stuff like that. I wanted to. I was sampling like, like crazy stuff, like sound effects records, and you know, just like bizarre stuff, and a lot of world music, what we mm, would call mm -hmm. world music, right. like sitars and tabla and stuff like that. And then when I found out about Bill he wasn't sampling that stuff he was using musicians who played that stuff you know he he had this concept of this thing called collision music which was basically a fusion of completely different styles of music and putting them kind of into the same palette and I kind of saw what I was doing is same thing but I was sampling it you know he was using the real musicians and he was using the top musicians of any genre. So this group material had like Bootsy Collins playing bass, you know, Pharaoh Sanders playing sax, wow. uh, Zakir Hussein mm. playing tablas. You know, he's like the he he was like the world's you know, no, uh, not Zakir Hussein. Zakir Hussein plays a uh, stringed instrument. Who was that? Anyway, he 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 worked with the best musicians of any genre. And I first heard this record called Hallucination Engine by Material. Mm. 
and it had a very strong hip hop influence and a very strong world music influence. And it was, that was the first time I had heard that juxtaposition of someone suddenly, you know, now it's very common to use Arabic music or yeah. stuff like that. But that was the first time I had heard someone juxtaposing Arabic music and hip hop beats and dub bass line. So I was like, I got to meet this guy. I didn't really know much about him. But then when I did a little research, I found out this is the guy who produced Herbie Hancock Rocket yeah, in Giant. 1983, which was wow. like, that was my breakdancing anthem back right. in the day when I was like in whatever, junior high. Right. So, and that song won a Grammy. You it know? did, yeah. That was a very uh, seminal track in a lot of ways. Oh, huge. I, and I actually wrote an article about that track many years later for Medium, you know, that, that, uh -huh. that website. But think about it. Here's a guy, Herbie Hancock, old school jazz cat. He's kind of had his day. And then he links up with this unknown producer, Bill Laswell, and they make this track, Rocket, which is the first, really the first uh, track to have scratching on it. Right. In a, in a musical way. It was not just like a little scratch and cut. But there's like scratch solos in it, right? You throughout know? the song, Grand yeah. Mixer DST, right, right, old school deep Zulu Nation DJ. Yeah. So this was like putting, you know, this was like connecting the dots. And it's also a completely groundbreaking music video too. Oh, you know? I'm glad you mentioned that. Right. Yeah, because apparently that was the first time, like. You don't even see Herbie Hancock in the video except on a TV at the end. Right. And that was a time that MTV was not playing black artists. Mm. Like Michael Jackson was having trouble getting in. Right. But I think that year, which was 84, that won a Grammy. Uh, Rocket won a Grammy. And then I think it almost won as many MTV awards as Thriller or something wow. like that. Right. You know? So, yeah, it was a very seminal track. So... When I first, when I heard Material Hallucination Engine, I was looking on the back cover of the album, and it said, produced at Greenpoint Studios. Right. And I'm living in Williamsburg at the time, and I'm like, I'm telling my friend, Greenpoint, Greenpoint isn't that just like up the road? And he said, yeah. So I found out later that Greenpoint was like five minute walk from my house. <laughs> right. So I, I was like, I have to, I have to interview this guy Bill Laswell right. right? he's been involved in too much shit so under the aegis of writing a review for the source under this hip hop alternatives I set up an interview with Laswell which was easy enough you know Axiom was his label which was through Island uh, so I, I met Laswell at his place he lived on Park Avenue at the time and I walk into his living room and honestly it's four walls floor to ceiling of just records wow and i was just like whoa i mean this guy had more records than most people i had ever seen except africa bambada like i i had been to bambada's yeah. place in bronx river uh-huh and there's records in the bathroom there's stacks <laughs> right. in the bathroom in the kitchen and he said that was only one of several places where he kept records. wow um but yeah, so Bill had all of these records. And so was he inviting as far as like an interview? You guys obviously well, must have hit it off. We hit it all, yeah, because right. we, we, you know, first we, it was just regularly interview, I was asking questions, but then when I found out that he had all these connections to other stuff, 
you know, he had he had he had worked at a label called Celluloid, which was kind of right. like a seminal hip hop label. Put yeah. out a lot of early change the beat, Fab Five yep, Freddy. Fa exactly, K right. uh, change the beat, K Bop and Fab Five Freddy, right. and change the beat. You know, has that uh, has that fresh sample, which right. is the most sampled record <laughs> right. in all of hip hop. Right, right. You know, that's another little tidbit there. Yeah. Uh, so. Bill and I just naturally hit it off because, you know, we were talking about not just hip hop, we were talking about all the other stuff he was into. Make a long story short, I became friends with him because the studio was just five minutes from my house. I used to spend most of my days there because every day he would have different musicians coming in and recording stuff. And, th and I got to say, through Bill, I met a ton of people. I met I a ton of my, le like, people who were legendary to me, like... Like, I remember one of the first people I met uh, was Africa Baby Bam from the Jungle right. Brothers. And the Jungle Brothers, again, was like another one of my favorite hip-hop groups. You know, their first album, Straight Out the Jungle, was just like a street classic. And then their second album, oh, Done Absolutely. by the Forces of Nature. What? What the it's hell incredible. was that? Yeah. That was just like, to me, that is the beginning of the native tongue thing because they were totally in on some pan-african shit some hippy dippy peace love you know tribe vibes beads on a string africanism just they were coming at hip-hop from a whole yeah crazy direction that had never been yeah but it was still like funk oriented but it, was still, too, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was still it was still hard right, too. You right. know, it was just it was playful but it was still hard so africa baby bam i met him and we became friends, and that's how I also I met T Torture, who you know Torture. is who you know is sensational. Right, right. When I first met him, he was the fourth Jungle Brother, and he. So this is already like while they're into their third third album era, right? Or yep. Sensational wasn't. I don't know if he he, oh, he was the 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 album after Done by the Forces of Nature yeah. was called JB's with the Remedy, right? And there was a lot of shit around that album, <laughs> right? Because it's a confusing real, release, I feel like. Yeah, the real album never came out because basically it was so it was so experimental. Really, and it's it's since come out. Like I, back in the day, I put out four tracks on a ten inch, and it was called Crazy Wisdom Master. I had a I had a, right. I had a vinyl only label back then called Black Hoods. Yes, I see the hat. Yeah, I remember Black it. Hoods Medina, which is. A nickname for Brooklyn back right. in the day, because you know, in the in the nation of Islam, you know, you have Mecca and Medina, the holy cities. So that was Brooklyn was called Medina, and the Black Hood. Well, we don't have to get into that, but the Black Hood's logo is also like the black spade. It is, yeah, it's from the street gang. So there's a lot of science in that too. There is, yeah, but um, uh, New York imagery. Um, what were they saying? So you're, yeah, you're talking about basically this is like your introduction to Sensational. Too, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Who played a, a big role in oh, word yes. sound too? Right. Okay, so I had met I had met Sensational a couple times. I met him at um, Green Street Studios, right. where my where my man Scotty Hard was in was an engineer, and that was another big hip hop studio like LL Cool J, PE, all these P Rock and Seal Smooth, I think. All these groups right. used to record at Green Street in Soho. 
And I met, uh, one day I was visiting Scotty Hart, he was working on the Jungle Brothers, and there's this kid there, and he comes up to me, and he goes, got any weed? <laughs> <laughs> and he was just like this really kind of odd character, you know. How many people do you meet for the first time and they ask you if you have weed? So right. I was like, all right, this guy's kind of weird. Then I met him at Laswell Studio when the Junk JBs were doing a session there, and he asked me the same thing. And then Bill, he, Bill put out a compilation, and this torture had a track on it, and it was just like the most dusted hip hop track I'd ever heard. It was just like, it was all offbeat, you know. The the, the vocals were really badly recorded. It's. And I found out subsequently that he had recorded the vocals through a pair of headphones. Ah, so, <laughs> there you go. And it was just, it was just, to, pardon my French, fucked up. Right. But I loved it. Right. I was like, I liked anything that went against the grain, you know, because, and I think at that time in hip hop, that's what hip hop was all about too. You didn't, biting was a bad word back then. You didn't want to sound like everyone else. Right. You know, you wanted to create your own sound and your own identity and that's why that era of the late 80s and early 90s is is still called the golden era because everyone was so different and everyone was adding on their own elements to hip-hop we had this template called hip-hop and instead of trying to copy it wholehearted you know and, and instead of trying to emulate it People were just adding on to it, right? You know? And that's to me, that's what it was about. Now it's just like, good God, what happened, man? It's like it's hard to say exactly how to pinpoint that, but yeah, the individuality no longer seems like as much of a prize as it once was. Yeah, you know, like. and and certain things are not prized. Like lyricism was always a huge quality in hip hop. You know, it's not. You got respect for the for the words you use and the concepts that you put out there you know but now like you got this mumble rap right. stuff where people people don't even know what you're saying you know it's like and and to, to, to be honest sensational was a mumble was doing mumble rap 20 years ago <laughs> right yeah but anyway um somehow you know, me and this crazy guy, Torture, hit it off. And one day I invited him over to my crib in Williamsburg. I had this I had this two thousand square foot loft I was living in. Wow. For like a thousand a month. Amazing. And I invited uh, torture over. This is before he was sensational. And I ha I just had this beat playing and once again as soon as he walks in, he he, he kinda his ears prick up and he, he didn't even say hi to me. He said Yo, hook up the microphone. Hmm. So that was the beginning of our collaboration. And I, like after that, he used to come over practically every day. And we used to make beats. And it, it was kind of good for me because I, I was just learning the equipment back then. Right, right. So, so when is this? This is still like early, early, early 90s, 90s right? Yeah. This is even, this is even uh, maybe before the first word sound came out. So at what point did you start um, dabbling in production? Because, I mean, obviously as Spectre and as the other, some of the other uh, projects you've done, I mean, you've been like super prolific as a producer, which, you know, people may not 
know if they're only familiar with you as a writer or right. your books and stuff like that. So, I mean, can you talk to us a little bit on how right. that fell sure. into place? Yeah, like, well, I've been dabbling with production since probably college. Okay. Uh, but the, basically the, the first time that I got equipment myself was when I moved to New York. And did yeah. you? How did you even seek that out? Did you just well, go you know, to, well, for, you know, I've always been a DJ, right? Okay, right. In, in, yeah, uh, college in, radio, in college, right. college radio. So it's to, to me, it's a natural progression. First, we were doing radio, right? right? Then we used to, whenever there was a reggae show in town, if it was at a big club, the club would get us to open up the show, right? Spinning tunes, nice in Boston, in Boston. Right. Then, uh, you know, you get tired of. Sp- playing other people's music right and then you want to kind of make your own music that's that's like the next organic step so you buy a drum machine you right. figure out how to use it you know like and i was lucky because i i picked up sp12 like one of the first generation sp12 right from a guy i got it used and that was my first uh experience with production myself then i got the next piece of equipment i got was a kai 950 which mm-hmm. was the big sampler back then right and you know i had people like prince paul teaching me how to use that thing Incredible. Giving, giving, giving me tips like he showed me like how to sample something and then filter it out so it sounds completely different right. and and he's a genius at that you know he absolutely a guy like prince paul can take a, a recognizable loop and make it chop it up and make it totally unrecognizable and that that's that's where the creativity comes in hip hop. Absolutely. You know, you just don't sample like you know, a known hit and just loop it and then throw some lyrics over it. You know, it's like back then people were very creative with what they did and they actually wanted to sound different from other people and that's how that's how the whole genre, how the whole art form expanded and grew because you know, it, when everyone's doing the same thing, I don't see how anything can grow. Right. You know, it's yeah. just like, and it happens in everything. It, it Things kind of plateau out. But at that time, you know, people were trying different stuff. And that, that's why I always thought that word sound had a place in hip hop, even though we weren't accepted, because right. that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to push the envelope to the next level too we didn't know what we were doing really but we just didn't want to sound like the crowd then it became like a quest for equipment at the time you know instead of paying money to go work at a studio and pay an engineer and stuff like that it was more about let me be the engineer now and let me learn how to use all this equipment so right it was all very organic and everything was really self-taught or taught by people I know, like Prince Paul, Scotty Hard. You learn from other musicians, you learn from other people, um, and you're constantly, you know, any money I got, I would buy a new piece of equipment. And that's how I slowly built up my home studio. And then, you know, working with other artists like Sensational, sometimes I would just be his engineer. and he has some really crazy ideas and sometimes it doesn't even make sense when you're putting together a track like he'll say sample this sample but then when the whole thing comes together Mm -hmm. 
it's like, wow, this kid. Right. So I learned from people like that too. You know, it's like this guy had no experience making music, but he had an intuitive sense right, right. of how different sounds are put together and layered. And I always call him like the Lee Perry of hip hop because he was so. It's not bad. He's so unorthodox in what he does. Like one day he came over to my house. He, he used to carry this little portable cassette uh, thing, and he had sampled the sound of the subway doors closing. Ding dong. Right. And one day he said, "Yo, yo, 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 sample this, sample this," and he actually played it, and we sampled it into a microphone. He said, "It's, it's extra dirty." Right. And that sound of the subway doors closing became like a hook huh, okay. in the song that we did. You right. know? So it's like, that's what I love about production. There's no rules to it. Right. And the sky is the limit. You don't have to sample all funk or soul. You have a whole world of sound. You don't even have to sample music. Right. You have a whole world of sound you can sample. And I used to have a portable DAT player at the time. Nice. And I used to do crazy ambient recordings. Oh, yeah. And sometimes I would just play that throughout the whole track. So there's like, a, there's like this, there's almost like this chaos going on under the track. Right. You know, even though you, ha even though hip hop is that regular kind of beat, then you have this chaos going. Yeah. And that's, that's another thing that I learned from like RZA. Mm. Because I was, I was, I actually wrote the uh, bio for Wu Tang before they even really? came out. Not 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 for Wu Tang for Protect Your Neck. Wow. Yeah. You know, because I was I'm a journalist at this time. I'm writing for all these magazines, and then I'm also doing bios for labels at the sure. time. And I so for the single of Protect Your Neck Protect for Wu Tang neck, Records for the for, yeah the 12 inch that right. came out. I don't know how they got my name, but RZA called me up and he said, "Yo, you want to write the bio?" For, for uh, you want to write the press release for Protect Your Neck? Right. And I said, sure. I, I like the song. And then, you know, I, that was the first time I interviewed RZA. And I, I was really struck by how smart this guy was. He, t he sounded total hood, total ghetto. He had a fucked up voice and like, yo, yo, yo. But this, his, what he was talking about and his concepts, it was just far beyond anyone I've even met, right. you know. And we're also like the same age. Mm. So that was the first time I had met RZA. And then just over the years, we became friends. And I ended up, every magazine would contact me because they knew that I knew him. You were the dude. So I was the guy. If you wanted a Wu-Tang piece, I was the guy. Yeah, and you ended up doing, um, you did a 33 and a third on... on I, I never did that. Oh, I see. <laughs> I saw it. And I'm like, well, it's not available. So I wonder what... I never did that. So what's the story with that? With the, with that particular thirty three, yeah, well, yeah. I I just never got, uh, you know, it's tracking down Wu Tang is just next to impossible right, right now. They're all spread all over the place. Right. It was just logistically, it was very difficult doing it. But um, what I was going to say was, just interview, just ha hanging out with RZA and interviewing him and being in the studio with him, I learned so much, and. Sometimes when I was with him, we used to go to Sam Ash, like just to shopping, and, and he showed like for gear, for gear, right. and that's like that's like why I bought the Nord Lead keyboard because that's like what RZA used on, I think it was like Liquid Liquid Swords. Mm. He used um, so you know I used to get a lot of tips from producers, Prince Paul, 
in that way. So I was kind of masquerading as a journalist at the time and, and just like taking <laughs> notes, you know, like, which I use for myself. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. But yeah, that, just talking about your own production work, too. Obviously, yeah. that's the running. The, it seemed like the journalism, the writing and recording were sort of running in tandem everything with one another. Con- right? Everything was concurrent. Right? It was just a, it was just all out music you know I was like I said I, I, I approach something from all angles so I'm writing about music I'm making music you know I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much everywhere right 360 on, on this music thing on this hip hop thing hell yeah and uh, luckily at the time you could you could actually make a living out of it you know? yeah because I mean after my book came out then it was a whole another level because then I had Publications like the Rolling, like Rolling Stone and the New York Times, approaching me to write. Right. And I was like, "Wow, this is this is amazing." You know, so I like I, I never turned down any work. I always, I always write and. And you were able to support yourself with the writing back then yeah. too. I'm sure. Right. And every and. You know, it's it's kind of it's kind of incredible when you think about it because when. 2016 to live in New York City, man, it, it takes a lot of resources. And yeah. You, and it takes a lot of hustle. Like if you're, you know, the cost of living is a lot higher now than it was. Because as I said, I was paying a thousand dollars a month rent, and my whole life was music, and like any money I earned went back into the label. Right. You know, I wasn't even. But it's not like I was making a lot of money, but I I was living such a good quality of life back then right, right. on nothing, and it's kind of surprising, you know. Because you live in Baltimore now, right? Uh, yeah. In 2000, I moved down to, to Beemore, where I, where I grew up. Oh, okay. Cool. And that was actually a good move for me because I could I could see the writing on the wall as far as New York, what sure. was happening, the, the gentrification. I had been priced out of so many neighborhoods. And finally, I was in... The last place I lived in New York was Bed-Stuy, and I got priced out of Bed-Stuy. In 2000? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, the last place I lived on Gates Avenue... I think I was paying like eighteen hundred a month, which was wow. a lot yeah. for me for one person to come up with every month. No question. That's probably peanuts now compared to yeah. To you know, but also I could just see that you know just look at the change in Williamsburg. You know, like now it's like almost like Soho. You know, but back in the day it was it was dangerous. It was scary. But yet, I liked it so much because there was so much opportunity back then. Right. You know, like we used to throw parties in these abandoned warehouses. You know, bring in a generator. Right. And just set up and just throw free parties. Like. Mm-hmm. You know, as Wordtown, you do stuff for Wordtown stuff, or just not as Wordtown. There was a, one of uh, one of my friends, Doc Israel, who's, oh, right, who's a right. Wordtown artist. Of course. He, you know, he. And we, we used to work out of his studio in Williamsburg. He had a studio called Bass Mind. I think now he's in Bushwick. Gotcha. And he yeah. still he, he still might have a studio there, but that was Doc used to throw early parties down by those abandoned warehouses on the waterfront. Right. It was a it was a very cool scene back in the day. It was a much more open scene. It was all artists. Um I remember in Williamsburg there used to be this building called the Old Dutch Must- Mustard Factory, and people used to set up crazy installations. Right. So, 
Um, um, well, let's see. I, I would love to talk just a little bit about um, psychoanalysis, just if we okay. can, because I feel like that was the one, a I big break. Through. Yeah. Yeah. And um, even though it was in the middle of the, you know, timeline really for word sound, but I mean, it was also, you kind of gave, um, you know, it was like a rebirthing of Prince Paul, too, I oh, feel yeah, like, sure, too. Sure. And I even remember some articles back then, too, of him where he was at a certain place in his life, mm-hmm. you know, post De La and like during Gravediggers. And it was like this great thing. And, and if you can recall, too, I mean, even with my now defunct label, you know, we ended up doing a record several years later called It's True Mental, which uh, on Female Fun which um, isn't the same, but it's another kind of stab at like an instrumental sort of album, but nothing can really like compare to when and and the music that made up psychoanalysis because it was just really, it touched a nerve. It was like kind of, um, there was a lot of taboo subject matter on it, but it was also just dark and depressing and, uh, but like so rich with samples and- Oh yeah. What was that? Humor. Yeah, yeah. It's just a dark sense of humor. And I had met I had met Prince Paul while I was working on the new beats. Right. And, there's a yeah. He has he a was, chapter he, in that. He was one of the he was one of the cooler people that I interviewed. I, I must have interviewed at least a hundred rappers for that book. But he's one guy who stuck out because, for one, his personality is more kind of quirky and nerdy. Right. He's not trying to put on a front. You know, he's not trying to be the tough guy, or, or he's tr- not trying to be Mr. Streetwise. Right. He is what he is. He's a guy. He's a kid from suburban Long Island, middle class kid who went to college. Right. Who just happens to love hip hop and music, and uh, I, I could really relate to Paul. Yeah, and you know, I think he's only a couple years older than me. Um, so when I was talking, when I was doing the new beats. I said, I told Paul, you know, I'm going to start a label one day and I'd like you to do a record. Because I remember in college, man, that first day La Soul was just, of course, know, just mind blowing, you know. It's an, and I appreciate, I appreciated that, that kind of strain of hip hop, just like I said about the Jungle Brothers, you know, the native tongues. <laughs> Excuse me, the native tongues brought such a positivity and a vibrance to hip-hop at the time you know and they they really changed the focus of hip-hop in a way and I really appreciated that and so Paul when I when I asked him you know to do a record he was down he said let me know when you're ready so a couple years later I said Paul remember remember when I when we first met I, I was talking about my label I said I got my label now and I want you to do a record and at the time, like you said, he was kind of going a little down in the industry. He had had a couple, you know, misfires, if you want to call it that. And his stock was not on the rise. So um, he was working on a group called Gravediggers with right. Rizza and Fruquan, and that was kind of going to be his comeback you know, in the industry. And he was really kind of frustrated and disillusioned and disappointed with the industry side of things, you know, how he had been treated by the record industry. So here's a me coming in and I'm like, Paul, you know, give me a record, do anything you want, just get creative with it. And 
it kind of threw him for a loop for a minute because he was so used to record company people saying, oh, we need hits. We need something like this or we need a song like this. You know, we need like some radio play. And here I am and I'm saying, you know, just do whatever you want. You know, it's like you're the you're the man who introduced the skits to hip hop. And right. was well, that's one of my favorite things about your production. So Psychoanalysis is almost an album of skits and instrumentals and humor, you know. I don't think you know, maybe today in these PC days, it might not fly, you know, because the songs <laughs> like, go back to some it's a beautiful ones. night for a date right. rape. Right. You know, that was, it's it's Paul's sense of humor. It's like, but I don't think maybe people today might understand it like that. You know, people might yeah. get a little touchy about it. But yeah. here's a guy who, you know, his first, you know, obviously he was with Stetsa as just a DJ, but his first album as a producer goes platinum and then he's vaulted to these heights and then the next, and then you know he's almost thrown out right so uh, you know that also put that in my mind that you know this music thing is not stable no it's not going to last you know so when you're in it you know be in it fully and do whatever you can now because i know once you take one step away from it the whole thing is going to change and that's that's usually what happens, you know, it's right. like you can't, you can't, you know, it's, it's very rare for artists to have longevity in a career Absolutely. or consistency, you know, because the, it, the whole scene is so fickle, right? People get tired of stuff you know, the new things come up. So, well, you guys put out a, an incredible thing. I mean, if, if people haven't even if you're listening to this and you haven't had a chance to hear it, it's, it's, it's definitely a, uh, um, like an archive of a certain period of time exactly. in an artist's career and in just in the music landscape as a whole, too. I mean, I tend to listen to, uh, I mean, I, I, I try to, li- to, to listen to what's happening today, but inevitably I gravitate towards older music. Yeah, like likewise. Even, even today, you know, it's like, and that's really that's one of the reasons I started making music myself was I wasn't hearing something right so that's why I made music to like this is you know this is something else you know and my own music as Spectre is like that because there's no reason that I should be making music now like I, I don't you can't you can't sell your music now it's like it's almost it's almost a given that you're supposed to give stuff away for free as right. an artist, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's not fair for us for, as artists. Like, No, it's a raw deal for sure. We can't make a lip, you know, like everyone else, plumbers do their job and they get paid for it. Uh, doctors do their job and they get paid for it. Musicians do their job, but they can't get paid for it. Right. And that's pretty fucked up, you know? And... Uh, we could also see that coming with the with the digital age but you know we still do it because we're not hearing something out there you know or at least that's why i do it that's why i still make music i just put out my 10th specter album in 21 years amazing and you know the first few spec 
it took a while. It took a while for Spectre to catch on. But then I would say, like, towards the end of the 90s, I was actually selling a good amount of records for independent label. Right. And we were touring Europe, Japan. You know, to me, that's the, that was the biggest blessing for my music to get out there. Yeah, I just want amazing. people to hear it, you know? Right. I'm not necessarily interested in becoming rich or famous off it, or I'm not, but I wouldn't complain if that happened. <laughs> right. But it, it just bugs me out to, to, you know, go to Japan, take a 14-hour flight to Japan, and then I'm walking around record stores in Tokyo, and they have a word sound section, or That's they good. have a Spectre record up on the wall. Right. To me, that means everything. That's because that means that my music is trap is getting around the world. People are listening to it, and that's all I can ask for. Yeah, I at mean, the end of the day. and you have a certain perspective that other artists might not have because you've seen from both sides of the fence. Too, exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, one scenario I know that we both uh, probably weren't. Um, uh, recognized or known for any of our accomplishments was uh, the White Rapper Show. Okay. Because, um, you know, it, it was such a f kind of a hilarious anomaly at the time that, you know, now uh, people don't really reference that much. I mean, it was just like, it was like kind of in this weird mid-2000s period of time. But, uh, you know, it was pretty hilarious and the two of us worked on the show behind the scenes but we 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 both had the same job if i'm not mistaken um at least uh uh at, in the show's production now i started in the art department in pre-production i built the stage um with um some other people as i was working as uh, uh masquerading or moonlighting rather as a pa during that time uh, i also was doing my ponytail i remember <laughs> yeah i had long, long hair ponytail. and yeah I did, and like i think i had a big yeah. beard and shit too um so how were you brought into that show was through ego trip or yeah i was just looking for a gig man and you know those are my boys at right. ego trip sasha and elliot so i was just like yo put me on son <laughs> and i, I kind of gotten late in the game but it was good because the job that i was given was talent wrangler right which really meant hanging out with all the guest rappers who are on the show exactly. and being Search's personal right. chauffeur. So like, you, at the end of the, you know, for, for like, people that don't know, Search was the host of the MC show. MC Search from Third Base, right. Def Jam Group. Right. Uh, he, was the, he was the host of the show. And who was living, I think he was based in Detroit at that time yeah, or was, somewhere else. Yep. He was based in Detroit, but they put him up in New York for the show. They brought him and his family. Uh, so my job was basically to pick him up every morning, take him to set, hang out with him on set all day, hang out with any rappers who were guesting that day, right. get get them whatever they needed. Oh yeah, so the actual known yeah. entities, the known rappers that were guests, because yeah. there was a different challenge every day, there was a different guest rapper every day. So you would pick those guys up and yep. bring them. And that was a lot of fun, because I knew a lot of these guys. Right. You know? Prince I, Paul was on it yep. regularly. Cool Keith. Right. My boy Cool Keith. Where we shot in the strip club at Sue's, I think Sue's Rendezvous. Yeah, we shot at this really crazy strip club in the Bronx. And then, like, uh, Keith, I, I, I had to take Keith to his mom's house afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> After the strip club. <laughs> That's hilarious. He said, yo, just drop me off at my mom's. 
And I, I love Cole Keith, man. He's such a he's, yeah. he's a quirky guy, but super funny, super cool. Yeah, definitely. And you know, like you know, m- most rappers are like that. You know, they're totally down to earth. Right. And, you know, so it was a, it was a good gig. You know, it required a lot of uh, smoking. Yeah, which I remember smoking because because you were yeah because we had we were doing similar work, but yours was definitely the other side of it. Whereas I had to drive the contestants right. every day to their various physical and emotional challenges. You know, the guys, the writers of the show, Ego Trip guys, um, had really run them through the ringer on a daily basis, which as an outsider uh, was hilarious to watch, and especially because uh, as the talent wrangler for the for the white rappers themselves, uh, in the van, you weren't allowed, to, I wasn't allowed to talk to them. Right. And, um, but I knew, obviously we had like a call sheet that morning, we knew what was going down, like we knew where we were taking them, we knew, you know, that they were gonna go have lunch with Jules Santana or some shit right. like that, right. or they were gonna go to the rooftop party with uh, Noriega, and, uh, and, but they had no idea, and I wasn't allowed to talk to them. And then, so we, you and I would converge in different vans on the, on the set, um, oh, man. I remember Nori, man. That was a nightmare. Yeah? You had to pick... Where did you I have had to, to get First of all, I had to go to Jer- somewhere in Jersey and pick him up at, like, this gated complex <laughs> that he lived in, you know? Right. I mean, it's this nice, she-she, suburban gated complex. And, and then, um, you know, Nori, you know, he can't go from point A to point B. We got to make, like, ten different stops. So. Right. On the way back, I had to stop off at like Hot 97. <laughs> he went on the radio for a minute. Then we had to stop get a haircut. Oh wow, he had a ride. So yeah, and yeah. then and all the whole time, you know, it's not just him; it's him and his boys, and and they're just smoking, chain smoking blunts in the car, <laughs> and we're you know we're driving through like Midtown Manhattan, right. and the whole. Car is just filled with smoke. I got. I'm trying to concentrate on driving, and I'm just, <laughs> I'm just smoked out. Right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where we're going, and I've had no food. So, right when they stopped at Hot 97, I was like pissed off. So I was, I called the office, and I was like, "Yo, you told me to pick this guy up and bring him to the set. I'm, we've made like three different stops already. I haven't even had a chance to get some food. Can you send me some food?" So they had to have another production assistant <laughs> come all the way from the Bronx wow. to Manhattan and buy me food and stuff oh like this. It was just yeah, because we were shooting in the Bronx. Yeah, yeah like yeah. in a warehouse in the South Bronx. We were Bronx. shooting in a Stone's Throw from Bronx River Projects. Right. And this place, this air, whole area is just toe up. It's gritty. It's grimy. And then we have this little compound there where these like four or five white rappers or just, <laughs> it was bizarre it was surreal it was I'm like surreal. i love experiences like that yeah and then like you know then search was search was uh you know he was like uh high maintenance too you know like yeah he's the host to, too always had to like get him special stuff and and he couldn't he could not his wife was staying with him and his kids so he had to be very careful about smoking weed in front of them right so i was i always had to go and procure his weed and like haul him or someplace and then 
and then you know we park somewhere so he could smoke and then and then that's that's the night that yeah we ended up what, what happened well, that night we were I well was we were a lift home or yeah i think you might i think you gave the three of us a lift and i might have got out where search was getting out and just got on the train because i was living way out in bushwick at the time so far away from where the shoot was i mean it was like an hour and a half subway oh, ride geez. or something like that how did you get to well oftentimes i drove uh when i was doing art department i had i would take the the truck all the way to bushwick and then okay. so i was living all oh way. so you could keep the truck overnight so, yeah 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 me too i could yeah. keep the rental <laughs> <Right>. overnight <laughs> yeah so we were able to kind of get to and from work a little bit but i do remember one one of those nights after work because you would take search back to the hotel. I guess they put him in a hotel or something. And and because um, uh, I got, I remember because I got him to sign a, a cover of Brooklyn Queens 12 inch. Because okay. uh, we were smoking a bowl in the van. Um, the three of us just kicking back after work, after a long day's uh, work uh, at the White Rapper show. And it was just like a hilarious memory because I've never encountered Serge before or after that. But he, you know, we were, you know, working together for some, it was like a summer job, right. you know. Yeah, you know, funny enough, um, out of all the people that I interviewed for the New Beats, Serge was like the biggest a hole. Really? Yeah, and I and I and since that time, I always kind of like did not like him after that. Right. But then I get this job where my where my job is to be his personal assistant and to drive him <laughs> around. Can you imagine that? Right. But he didn't even remember that I had wow. interviewed him for the new beats, and like we we just hit it off. He was cool. You know, yeah, he seemed cool. Yeah, and um, it was it's just kind of funny how things work out. Right. Like that, you know, because like I like years earlier I thought he was such a such an ass, but then you know when I got to know him and working with him. Right. He was a t he was a totally cool guy. Do you remember Bushwick Bill was on the show too? Oh, Did yeah. you have to pick oh, him yeah. up? Oh yeah. Um, that was a that was Bushwick. a treat to meet him too. I remember I bummed a cigarette off of him. I, we smoked Newports uh, at the back of the uh, <laughs> set. Um, but yeah, it was just such yeah, a trip, a and show, yeah, right? and the cast were so bizarre. Like how they just their whole all their personalities. They were so such fish out of water. Even um, Persia. Who was the local homegrown talent? The the woman rap female. Remember them? She but. was the well. So you might you remember spent her. More time with them. Than yeah, I, did. I was with the. Like, I was spending all my time with the talent. Right. And you were spending all your time with the contestants. Well, yeah, the opposite of the talent. But I even she was from Far Rockaway, Queens, and I had to drive her when she got kicked off the show. I had to drive her all the way to Far Rockaway from the Bronx as she was crying on the phone to her mom about how she got oh, wow. uh, kicked off the show. And that show ran for like two seasons, right? It did, yeah, but the next one was in L.A., and it was like uh, all-female cast. Okay. So what we had, we had the great, you know, the original thing. So, but that, um, you know, n that was a great memory, but not, it was definitely not your only time on TV, too, and I just watched this shit, but you're, I'm sure you've done other stuff, too. But your episode on no reservations, that's something I wanted to talk about, too. Just your experience, okay. if you want to talk about yeah, that. Yeah. Um, so with Anthony Bourdain, you guys went to Sri Lanka together, right? Yeah, that, that kind of gets into my where I'm at these days, which is, you know, I'm still into music and everything, but uh, cooking is more of my bread and butter these days. Cool. You know? So basically... It started out. I've always liked to cook. I've, you know, it's always been kind of like a, ho a hobby. So um, even back when you were doing music stuff, I, you or know, you, 
I love I love to eat. So if you live alone, you better right. know how to cook. Right. You know. So I always, I was always into cooking and to learning how to cook other stuff. What about your parents? Did they did they cook a lot when you were a yeah, kid? Yeah, my mom my mom cooked all the time, and you know my family's from Sri Lanka, so we she would always make Sri Lankan food a couple times a week, and you miss that food when you go when you go when you leave home sure when you live on your own right you know so one of my wishes was to, to learn to make all the food that I had grown up eating Sri Lankan food because it's so good no one really knows about it because you know Sri Lanka is such a small place and you don't have a lot of Sri Lankan restaurants in America no are there, there some there, in New York New York is actually one of the bigger places where there are Sri Lankans because oh, Staten cool. Island you have a Sri Lankan community. Mm. There's even a neighborhood called Little Sri Lanka. In Staten Island? In Staten ah. Island. And you have like four or five good, really good Sri Lankan ah, restaurants. I got to go out there and check that. But uh, this was like 2005, maybe. Uh, if you, if, if, was that when the White Rapper Show was? Yeah, it was I 2006. Think, 2006, yeah. So, you know, I was doing the White Rapper Show because I needed a gig. Right. I, needed, I needed work. I needed money. And... I did that, and then I'm like, man, I'm, I'm going to have to get a full-time job. This is not cutting it. So instead of doing that, I said, you know what? I've wanted to do this Sri Lankan cookbook all my life, you know, and really learn how to make the food that I grew up with. I think now's the time to do it because i got nothing going on here, and I have no prospects. So, you know, why not just rent out my place and just leave the country for a year Mm. and work on a cookbook and just do something completely different it's still it's still exercising my creativity but it'll get me out of the country it'll get me working on something different and it'll be a whole fresh perspective so that's exactly what I did my mom had just bought a place in Sri Lanka a condo mm. so I had a place to live rent free and me, meanwhile I rented out my place in Baltimore right you know, I have a whole house in Baltimore, so I rented that out. And with that kind of income, you can live like a king right. in Sri Lanka. Really? Okay. You know, because it's so cheap to live there and when you're not paying rent. So I went to Sri Lanka, where my whole extended family lives. And I started just immersing myself in the food scene there. Like mm. I started going to markets. I started learning how to buy produce. I started learning about spices, like what... What does this spice do? How does this, you know, basically learning about the cuisine from the ground up. Ah, amazing. And it was such an amazing. And you just went in cold, like, yeah, I'm going to try this and see I'm what happens. i try this. Dope. I, I, I didn't have a book deal or anything. Amazing. Yeah, cool. But, you know, at least uh, I'm able to support myself while I'm there. And I'm doing a project that, I, that I'm really into. And... I got recipes from relatives, from friends, I ate out at restaurants. I basically became an expert in Sri Lankan food. And then I took this information that I had gotten over this year. And it was also a great year because, you know, I was able to travel to different places in, in Asia during that year. Cool. I had a base in Sri Lanka. Went to Thailand, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. Wow. And explored their food scenes too and mm. it was it was a great year so when i came back i had the makings of a cookbook and i i had even brought 
a friend of mine who's a photographer, a professional photographer, uh -huh. her name's Susan now, I brought her to Sri Lanka to do all the photography for the book. Cool. And I had amazing pictures, I had, a, I had recipes, and then I come back to the U.S. in like, uh, end of 2006, and I, you know, I've already done the new beats, I have, I've had a book out, how tough can it be to publish another book? Right, right. So I got an agent and... Really, is this that, I mean, were you able to parlay your success with the new beats, which is totally different style totally of book? Totally different style, but yeah, just having a track record as an author, right. it's, it's much easier to get an agent. Sure. So I got an agent, he was psyched about this book, but he said, it's gonna be, it's gonna be tough to sell a cookbook if you're not a celebrity chef. Mm, okay. So, um, he was unable to actually sell the cookbook. Like after a year, he was unable to do it. But I, on my own, approached this small company. Well, first of all, I I, I self-published the book. Cool. Okay. okay on a on blurb, which is like self-published. Right. Book. Right. Yeah. Because I wanted to see what the whole thing was going to look like with the pictures and everything. So with this self-publishing site, you can lay it out and everything, and they'll print out one copy color copy and send it to you hmm only thing is it costs $40 to print out one copy so if I was you know if you're gonna sell a book for that much you're not gonna make much profit on it no you can't you, can't, you know charge yeah. much more than that <laughs> no. so but anyway I had these sample copies and um, you know I, at that time uh, I used to watch No Reservations with Anthony Bourdain on the Travel Channel. I like the show because I travel a lot too. Yeah, and I've been to a lot of the same places, and it was kind of I was one, like one of the first travel shows, right? Like <coughs> and food shows. So I like the show, and my man Bill Adler. Yes, who's big in the hip hop. Yeah, legend. He, he's a he's a legend. He was the pub, first publicist for Def Jam. I found out that Bill Adler's wife was Sarah Moulton, who's like one of the first Food Network chefs. Right. Now she's got a show on PBS. And not only that, but Sarah Moulton had gone to cooking school with Anthony Bourdain. Mm. You know, I, I was just mentioning that I liked this show, uh, No Reservations, and I was wondering if she knew Anthony Bourdain. And she said, yeah, I do. So I said, can you give me his email? Because I just came back from Sri Lanka. I have this cookbook and so she gave me his email and I just sent him a cold note just like you know I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the show I just came back from a year in Sri Lanka working on a cookbook uh, if you ever do a show there I'd be happy to show you around that's all I said cool then I sent him a copy one of the blurb copies and then a couple months later one of his producers called me up and he said, we got your email and everything, and we're, we're going to do a show in Sri Lanka. Would you like to come? And I was like, man, sign me up immediately. Yeah. And not only that, not only did I get a chance to go, but I basically produced the whole show because I decided where we're going to eat. I decided what foods we're going to cover. I decided who's going to be on the show. I decided what segments. I put together the whole show. They gave you that kind of freedom? Like, they, hey, where they, do you they know go? nothing about it. Right. They had never been there. They don't know anyone there. Right. That's, the, that's another good thing about the show. They get 
they usually get a fixer who's an insider sure and that guy hooks them up with everything and you know obviously after having lived there for a year i now know a lot of people there yeah and through my family it's a small place yeah through my family i could get to anyone in sri lanka right you know so 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 we do two months of pre-production on this show and it's back and forth you know i'm dealing with the producer and then i do a tour of europe with sensational we go away for two weeks and then like right after that i flew to sri lanka with bourdain and crew and we shot the show for six days every day three or four locations wow it's busy it's like but they're very professional. They're used to doing it. They have two shooters, a producer, and a director, and Bourdain. So it's a crew of five and myself. So we rented a van, uh, you know, three or four locations every day. Very busy schedule. Right. Um, the way it works is like they would, the, 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 the crew would come early, shoot the preparation of the food. Then when the food's ready, they would call Bourdain go send the van to pick him up he right. shows up does his thing it's a little bit you know I thought that he would hang out more with the crew but he didn't really do that he he was also sick coming yeah, into the trip yeah it seemed like that like the beginning was, of the episode which he was, was kind, kind of, of funny because you can see it on his face right. in the episode he had had a bad dirty water hot dog in New York the day before we left oh my god so he had like some food poisoning and he was in a real bad mood on the whole trip. You know, I remember the flight. Uh, yeah, what's the flight like? Where do you fly from, flight, from? From New York or London? Went or? JFK to London. Uh, then London to Abu Dhabi. Wow. Abu Dhabi to Sri Lanka. The whole trip takes about 23 hours. Yeah. And then we get to Sri Lanka. It's just hot as a mother. What time Humid. of year was it? It was in December. Wow. But any time of year there it's like 80 degrees and muggy right and um you know also this is in the last stage of the of the civil war that was going on there. wow so colombo is like a fortified city there's there's checkpoints every few hundred yards there's armed troops on the streets wow. with ak's so they were all, all a little freaked out about that like and like checkpoints you got to give the passport they searched your so the, the crew was a little freaked out. Bourdain was a little freaked out about all this. <laughs> to, to, add, to add to his food poisoning. Right. And then, you know, he was a little... At first, he was a little standoffish. Right. You know, obviously, we got to, we got to know each other well on the trip, but... Right. I'm going to close this window real quick. Okay. Oh, thanks, man. So we're in Sri Lanka, you know, in December 2008, I think. It's very hot. It's muggy. There's all kinds of military on the streets, on checkpoints, Kalashnikovs everywhere. Bourdain has got food poisoning, and we're eating at three or four spots a day. (laughs) And it's like heavy stuff like curries yeah it looked like it and every place that I go to I, I take I take the chef aside and said they like it really hot put a lot of chili into it right like, for, like you know they, they eat like Sri Lankans 
So <laughs> that probably compounded his 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 diarrhea, <laughs> you know. And so he was not loving life on that trip. Wow. But it was a fun trip, and we covered a lot of ground. And then for the last meal, I took him. There was this little. There's this lady named Leela who who's been my aunt's cook for like 45 years, and she's about this tall. She's about three feet tall. This little lady speaks no English, and she had just retired from my aunt's, and she she lives in a little village like three hours north of Colombo, like mm. in the middle of the boondocks. So I took Bourdain and crew there for lunch, and on a train too, right? Yeah, or? we took. No, we drove up there. We took a train to Candy. That was a different... Oh, okay. But we drove like three hours to this village outside of Chilau, and Leela and her sisters cooked a huge meal for us. And their kitchen is basically outside. It's like they built like little fires outside and cooked in clay pot. Right. This is a full, full-on Sri Lankan traditional village meal, and he loved that. Cool. He loved it. There was like 10 different dishes. And then... I asked him, you know, um, can you write a, a blurb for my book, for the, for the back cover? And he was very nice. He wrote a blurb for it. And then after the show aired, I approached, I was still trying to, to get a deal for my book because remember I had self-published right. it. So I, I, I came across this company called Hippocrene Books, which is based in New York. Okay. And they do all types of ethnic cookbooks and foreign language books. So I approached them about publishing Rice and Curry, which is the title of my cookbook. And they were, you know, after it had gotten ordained by Bourdain and all this, <laughs> they, were well, they, were, they were well on board. So the book came out uh, in 2011, end of 2011, and it was actually, it became a New York Times notable cookbook of the year. Really? Yeah, it was on nice. You know, there's a, every year they published a list of like 10 to 15 books right. that, are, that you should check out. And Rice and Curry, Sri Lankan Home Cooking, the Hippocrene Books version was on there. And basically when that book came out, that started the next chapter of my career, which is food. And that's where I'm at. Now. Incredible. Yeah. yeah, it's super cool, man. Yeah, I mean, I love cooking and I do quite a bit, but curry is something I've always been a little intimidated about like jumping into. So, uh, but I want to, peep that book uh, out. you should definitely peep my book because unlike a lot of books on the market you know sometimes you buy a book and you cook a recipe and it never turns out like right. that i have personally tested all all the recipes in my book like you know a lot so you know that's that's the work in in doing a cookbook right. making sure that the recipe that you publish is going to turn out the same every time right so um, I, I would definitely, you know, encourage you to try because it's not—it's not that difficult, you know. It's just right. people are people are kind of intimidated by the ingredients, but really, yeah. once once you demystify that, it's it's pretty simple and straightforward. Nice. And then, and this next thing, how far along are you with that? And then my yeah, my next book is going to be called Gen Next with the N, and it's basically a memoir of the last twenty-five years of my life. In music and film and cooking and traveling and I just you know this has been a project I've been working on for the last eight years you know since 2008 so wow. it's finally good to just 
get it off my desk now, and I'm you know I'm just in the process of sending it to an agent. Really? Yeah. Wow. Nice. So the book is the. Let's just say that the first draft is completed. It's about 300 pages long. So how many words is that? Oh man. Do you even think in those terms? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you know, on the computer, it, it tells you how right. many words, but. I'm, I was more concerned about pages. pages. Yeah, right. it's about it's about three hundred pages, double spaced. That's great. Each chapter is there's n there's nine chapters. Each chapter is roughly thirty pages. The 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 chapter on and each chapter takes place in a different country. Dope. Yeah. Cool. So like like there's a ton of stuff we haven't even talked about. Like my time in Iraq when I worked in Iraq. Wow. That's the opening chapter of the book. Wow. Okay. And then it goes through, and the biggest chapter in the book is Crooklyn, and it's about the word sound era and my time cool. in New, in in New York. And then there's even a chapter on Baltimore. Nice. You know, where I'm where I currently reside. Right. That's my base. But uh, it's, how long were it's, you in Iraq for? I was in Iraq for six weeks. Cool. In the, in the middle of the worst time, like 2000, end of 2004. Wow. Yeah, when it was very tense. And hectic there and I was doing video editing there I was editing that's another thing we haven't even talked about we never talked about crooked or my video yeah my film stuff but yeah. I was I was making TV commercials there to promote the elections and it was a very tense time to be there and our we were staying we were living outside the green zone right next to the Australian Embassy and they were truck bombed and it totally kind of just blew our whole house to smithereens. Wow. Luckily, no one was inside at the time. So Jeez. that's a whole other adventure. Right. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I know. I so, you know, I, I just feel like, um, you know, the reason I did this book is, you know, they, they, they say the unexamined life is not worth living. You know, mm. and it's like at this point in my life, I'm, you know, I'm 48. I've done a ton of stuff. But I feel like I have really nothing to show for it besides the experiences themselves, you know, the experience of because to me, traveling is like something that you can't really. It's such an abstract experience, but it changes you in so many ways at the same time, Absolutely. Too, you know, and that's why the book is structured like that. Each chapter is set in a different country, because to me, travel has really enriched my life and made me the person I am. And you know, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to live if I couldn't travel and see the world and experience different people and different places. Because that's what it's all about to me. Definitely, the, the journey. You know, the adventure. And I'm just kind of reflecting back on the last 25 years of everything that I've done. And you know, even though I might not have much to show it materially, you know. Uh, I feel like a very rich man. I feel like I've had an incredibly blessed life up to now. And well, you got some incredible stories, man, I tell you. you know, I'm happy. And, and, you know, it's great to have venues like this to, to talk about stuff like that. You know, yeah, hell yeah. The long form, you know, as a journalist, I, I prefer the long form. Right. I like writing in-depth pieces because everything is just so superficial in our society. Everything yeah. is so, you know, now, especially now more than ever in the digital age, you know, Twitter, 140 characters. But there's something to be said for the long form, whether it's writing, whether it's a podcast like this, where you can right. really get into someone's 
mind and someone's experiences. So I've had a ton of people who I've been inspired with in my life and they've they've really caused me to, to live the life that I have. And I hope just in my experiences and, and what I've done, I hope I can inspire other people because that's what it's all about, really, you know. We're not we're not put here to be, you know, put into this nine to five lifestyle where we're suffocated, where our creativity is suffocated, where our dreams are not meant to be relevant, you know. As human beings, we each have to kind of dig into ourselves, find out what we really want to do, what our passion is, and just do it. Don't worry about the money or the educational background or anything. Money has never stopped me from doing anything I've wanted to do in Hell life, yeah. including starting a label. And, you know, maybe it's that naivete that made me do it, but, you know, you learn by doing stuff. You don't learn by school. You learn by jumping completely 100% into something and doing right. it. And I've, I've been blessed with the best education. You know, I've gone to private school. I went to Harvard. I went to Columbia. But I have learned more than anything from other people and from traveling. And that's what I encourage people to do. Because when you travel, you really free your mind. And, you know, as George Clinton says, free your mind and your ass will follow. <laughs> so let's leave it at that. Yeah. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. Bro. Thank you. Right. Definitely. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Well, that was my talk with Skiz Fernando, S.H. Fernando Jr. I'm still in my backyard of my parents' house, my childhood home. You can hear the, because uh, <laughs> it's completely dark. I'm standing in the, in darkness. Looking back at the kitchen, I got to go up, you know, uh, I checked on the duck. I'm almost done with my duck. I'm roasting some carrots. Made a traditional Hungarian um, cucumber uh, white vinegar sort of salad uh, amongst um, let's see what else have we got we got my cranberry sauce my uh, my signature red cabbage um, with coriander so yeah mm, getting hungry mm, mm, mm. yeah I gotta keep that energy up CJ my uh, my editor told me I need to uh, have a higher energy when when I come do my outros so you know given the the production uh, style of this you know I, I often have to record the intros and outros at times uh, you know completely different from when I record the actual uh, conversations themselves so coming into it I'm hyped up I'm ready to finish my meal making it at least feed my loved ones I want to thank you guys so much for tuning into the house list. You can um, find us on iTunes. Just search the house list podcast. Please subscribe. Um, I'd love to see uh, see more people engaging with it, especially if you like these conversations. I got many more to come. Um, you can also find it on SoundCloud.com as well, and pretty soon uh, have it up on Audio Mac and Stitcher as well. There's some other formats, uh, YouTube, uh, when I can. I got to do all that on my own and ain't nobody paying me. You know what I'm saying? So this is a labor of love. Just like, like, like the people I talk to on, on, on these things. It's really a lot of, a lot of people that love what they do or passionate about what they do, particularly in music. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, the opening theme, uh, was, uh, written and produced and performed by Dame Funk and Keith Ide. I want to send them a strong shout out, especially here on Thanksgiving. 
You know, I work a lot with Dame Funk. It's an incredible performer, producer, songwriter, and DJ. If you ever have the chance to check him out live or any of his recordings, if you may be unfamiliar with him, I highly recommend looking him up. D-A-M-F-U-N-K. Um, what else? What else? Well, I just want to thank you guys, too, as I... Uh, continue doing this let's uh let's get this let's let's wrap this year up you know it's i think it's been long enough for all of us and and, and get this uh get this next year figured out one way or another you know jesus um okay thanks again for listening i want to send uh one more shout out to sh fernando jr for for being a part of the house list and i'll see you guys uh next week all right travel safe i love you all grateful for you guys Love one another. All right? Peace, y'all. I'm out of here.